Cool. Rowan, great to see you. We've got two Rowans up today, double Rowan, uh, which is great. Can I pray for you, please, before we, uh, we get into it? Cool. Uh, Father, thank you so much for Rowan. Thank you for the time that he's had with you in preparing this message. And Father, we just want to hear from you this morning. So please, um, Holy Spirit, fill us and guide us as Rowan opens up your word to us. And please fill Rowan with peace and joy as he shares amongst family. Amen. All right. So, yeah, thank you very much for that uh, prayer and introduction, Seb. Um, so, for those of you who don't know me that well, I'm Rowan. Um, I'm married to my wonderful wife, Jess, over here. And we have two sons, one of which is well-behaved. The other one is up the back running around making lots of noise. <laughs> um, and my wife and I have this privilege within St Albans of leading a connect group and it's a connect group where we just want to plunge the depths of the Bible and encourage each other to follow Jesus um, with a greater passion and a greater enthusiasm. And it's part of that experience within the connect group that sort of led me down this path to talk about um, the topic of unity, disagreement and the love of scripture because there's a certain element of that that really defines that connect group. I'll also, I also want to warn you that there's going to be just an absolute firehose of content this morning. Um, this is a really big subject that I'm trying to do in about 25 minutes. So if there's any points that you want me to expound upon or you're unsure about, please just come, come see me after the service. I'd love to talk through those with you. Um, with that being said, we'll get into it. So this morning, I want to expand on the ideas um, of unity, disagreement, and the love of Scripture, how each one of these ideas relate to us living in genuine community with one another, how a good theology of unity can encourage us to have robust conversations about God, a lot of which we can disagree on matters, and how that disagreement as a community can turn us towards the Word and can turn us towards what God is saying through His Word and we can talk about it in really rich and uplifting ways. I want to make this preface at the start. This isn't a theology of bickering. This isn't a theology of tribalism. This isn't a theology of discontentment. This is a theology of unity with room for disagreement. And that disagreement turns us towards Jesus and the scriptures that talk so richly of him. So when I was discussing the sermon idea of unity, disagreement, and the love of scripture with my wife, Jess, <laughs> she quipped, this is actually a lot like our marriage. Um, and the analogy between marriage and the church is actually is quite appropriate because Paul uses it in um, Ephesians 5.22. He relates marriage to the unity between the church and Christ. So if it's good enough for Paul, we'll run with it here as well. So three things, three questions. How does unity 
in the church work, and how is it like marriage? What is some wisdom from marriage on disagreement that also applies to the church? And how is God using all these things to build us up and mature us? So today, I'm going to preach from 1 Corinthians 10, and this is, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, and this is a a section of Scripture. Paul's writing a letter to Corinth, and it's a very stern letter. If you think about the tone of the letter, it is not a positive letter. Um, But there is some real encouragement in it. So... I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did also baptize the house of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. If we just go back to the opening artwork, um, so there's a really interesting thing that happens um, throughout church history, and that later on, artists try to depict stories out of the Bible, and when we have Paul and Peter, which are depicted here, when they're depicted in art, they have that expression. They have this expression of bickering with each other. They have an expression where they're not exactly getting along. And in the scripture I just read, you have Paul and you have Cephas, who's also known as Peter. And we can actually read about the disagreement they had in Galatians chapter 2. These were also two of the most influential people in the early church. They are either directly responsible for the majority of the New Testament or are directly related to someone who wrote it, Um, apart from a few select people. But these two very influential people in the early church, um, they didn't take unity for granted. Unity was something that needed to be pursued and unity was actually something that needed to, be fought, needed to be fought for. So, now I want to lay out in the broadest possible sense what Christian unity is based upon. Because if we have a good sense, a good theology of what unity is based upon, it it really lays the best possible foundation for any conversation we can have after that. So Christian unity, it's based upon the gospel. It's based upon Christ giving up himself in order 
to create a body, a body of believers that are gathered together in love and in truth. So unity is only found in Christ. Paul makes this very clear by saying, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, was Paul crucified for you? No, Christ was crucified for you. So the gospel, this is the thing that unifies us as a body. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, lived the perfect, sinless life, was crucified at the hands of Pontius Pilate, was raised to life on the third day. Forty days later, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he will rule and reign until all enemies are made a footstool under his feet. In doing so, he reconciled us back to God, both forgiving our debts and adopting us as sons and daughters of God. Amen? Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul, Paul's desire was to preach the gospel, and the gospel was the uniting force of the church, and still is to this day. So unity is only found in Christ. But we need good theology. So Christ is up here, and we have good theology that maintains this high, exalted status of Christ. If we do not have good theology to back up the gospel, we wind up with a Christ that cannot unite us and cannot save us. And there's a parallel between this with marriage. So my marriage to Jess is two people coming together and being united. But on our wedding day, we made vows to one another, things that were critical that we would not break, or else the marriage would be broken. Um, faithfulness, caring for one another, building one another up, all those things. We make vows and so this is like the theology that holds the church together. So for Christians, these are the non-negotiables. These are the hills that we die on. And in the, in the past, these are quite literally the hills that we have died on. These are the disagreements that define the gospel. And these are also the points that have been tested throughout history. And two important points that I want to, want to focus on when we talk about unity, is first of all, the Council of Nicaea, and secondly, the Reformation. So, three points of unity. God, Scripture, and salvation. If we muddle any one of these points, we end up with a Christ that cannot save us or unite us. So, firstly, God. Eternal creator of heaven and earth existing eternally as one being, but as three persons, in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, united in one will and purpose, having an eternal relationship of love. This is where the Nicene Creed is so helpful. Um, I really recommend reading it and pondering upon it. The triune God is the only God with the ability to save us. 
and the only God who would actually want to save us. An eternal, singular God, so a God that is not triune, would have no desire to save. Secondly, Scripture. So the Scriptures are the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, and they have the following attributes. Firstly, inspiration. The books of the Bible were brought about through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, written through human authors. Secondly, historicity. These books are not mere myth, but they recount the mighty deeds of God throughout human history. Creation, incarnation, resurrection are all things that happened in our history. We cannot merely say they're myth. Thirdly, authority. The Bible is authoritative in every way. It requires something of us, and we have the duty to obey it. Four, sufficiency. The Bible equips the man of God for every good work. The Bibles are entirely sufficient. We do not need to add to them in order to find out how we are saved, um, and we do not need to add to them in order how in order to find out how we live our Christian life. And finally, salvation. Now, salvation, um, I can't talk about salvation without talking about the Reformation. So, in 1517, Martin Luther famously nailed his 95 Thesis to the um, church door in Wittenberg, I believe, um, <laughs> And that sparked a flame that brought about the recovery of the gospel as contained within the scriptures. And there is a summary statement of the whole Reformation um, called the Five Solas. Um, and you may not have heard of that term before, and that's fine. Um, up until recently, I hadn't. But I was exposed to it through worship music. Um, there's a great modern hymn called In Christ Alone, and it contains these lyrics. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, and my song. So, sola just means alone. These are the five alone points that talk about our salvation. And I have to say, it's a very appropriate psalm this morning. We have Psalm 62. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. So firstly, grace alone. We merit only condemnation. It is all of God that saves us. Faith alone. We contribute nothing to our salvation, we cannot earn our salvation, we cannot work towards our salvation. It's through trusting in Christ alone that we are saved. Christ alone. It is only the death of Christ that can atone for our sin and reconcile us back to God. Four, Scripture alone. Scripture alone tells us about this wonderful salvation. 
And finally, glory to God alone. Because salvation is all of God, this is a work of God, it's God's doing, it is for His glory alone. Uh, we can't take the credit for it. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, certainly did not want the credit for it. He was not crucified, Christ was. So we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Amen? Great. So this, this theology, and I hope it's good theology, um, prevents us from making a couple of different errors. And I see these errors being made quite often. We either go too broad in unity and say, well, you know, I love God, and you love God, so we are, we're all united. Everything's good, everything's well. And in doing so, we let in all these doctrines that undermine the gospel, um, and we let in just outright heresy. We should avoid that. There's also the temptation to go too narrow, and this is the direction I'm tempted in as well. Um, we make secondary or tertiary items grounds for salvation. So, what Bible translation you use? What sort of music you play in church? What, what clothing you wear to church? We make, we put those minor issues up here alongside the gospel and we make those issues of salvation and we exclude just massive parts of the body of Christ and we can even become hostile to different parts of the body of Christ and that is a massive error. So good theology prevents these issues and I guarantee you that every single one of us are tempted to err on one of these two directions. So just as Jess and I are united by the covenant of marriage, the gospel, the covenant of grace, unites us to Christ and to one another. So, disagreement. When it comes to disagreement, what do we do? This is something that's very clearly present in any sort of church body and the church universal. Uh, you don't have to look very far to find disagreement. Well, first of all, it's the tone of disagreement. Um, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. In Paul's mind, quarreling is not a good thing. Quarreling is bad. This is not a theology of bickering. This is a theology of unity with space for disagreement. These are two different things. So firstly, we need to differentiate between quarreling and disagreement. And then, we need to guard against disagreement becoming quarreling. If we become very entrenched in our own positions, and the other person's entrenched in their position, we need to really be careful that we don't just start bickering and quarrelling with one another. Paul does not think very highly of that, and neither does Christ. So this is just like marriage. The tone that I use with any brother or sister in Christ, or the tone that you use with any brother or sister in Christ, should be a tone that you are not prepared to use with your wife. 
<laughs> I'm called to love my wife, and anything less does not glorify God. In the same way, I'm called to love my brothers and sisters in Christ, and anything less does not glorify God. And the next point I want to make, this is, this is where the marriage analogy falls over. So, as Christians, we have a common point of truth. When me and my wife disagree, it's over things like holiday destinations, things we should be doing with our money, things we should be doing on the house, renovations, the likes. And most of these disagreements are disagreements of preference. Um, your holiday destination, renovations you want to do to the house, these are preferential. My wife wants one thing, I want another thing, and we're trying to exert our will upon one another in order to come to a, a conclusion that is suitable. <laughs> and this is where Christian disagreement is completely different. We have the fixed point of truth which is the Bible. The Bible contains objective truth, things that are true no matter what my subjective reality sees it as being. Um, <laughs> we are not, when we disagree um, as Christians, we are not trying to impose our wills upon one another, but we should be coming to the Scriptures and having God's will imposed upon us. We should be opening the scriptures saying, what is God requiring of me and how does he want me to live? And have the scripture, the revealed will of God imposed upon me from it. So if we have this fixed truth of the scripture, and we do, why do we still disagree? So there are so many reasons why we have disagreements in the church, and I just do not have time to cover them all. But <laughs> here are some. Okay, first of all, big one, sin. Secondly, culture, languages, hermeneutics, our previous life experiences. These are all massive, massive factors in why we sometimes talk past one another and don't see eye to eye. But I want to I focus on one point, and this is a, this is a point that I've found really fascinating. Um, one reason we disagree, and sometimes don't disagree well, is the very way we engage with text. So, this is a really interesting fact. It, it is really worth meditating upon and just thinking, because it will just make you go, huh. The fact is, it's only really been for the last 100 years that Christians have had widespread access to the Scriptures and the ability to read them. Um, from the point of the Reformation, uh, the invention of the printing press, there came this big push of making the Bible more and more accessible to the general populace, having it in translatable and intelligible languages that we can read and enjoy ourselves. But there was still an incredibly low literacy rate, and the price of having a Bible was incredibly high. 
And over time, those two, those two stats became better and better and better, and this is an incredible blessing, to the point now where you can get a free app off the Bible on your phone with multiple translations, and you can, you're just free, you go for it. And New Zealand's incredibly blessed to have really high literacy rates. But what this has led to is Christians being more and more isolated when they engage in the Scriptures. We talk, we talk now about our morning devotional time, our quiet time, our alone time with the Scriptures, and I just want to encourage you, those are amazing blessings. We should be going after that. We should be using the way that God has blessed us with the Word and with literacy and all these good things to honour Him. But it also comes with recognising that for the vast majority of church history, that just hasn't been the case. That the hearing of the Scriptures was something that was experienced in community. If we save the next slide. There we go. And this is something that's contained within Scripture as well. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Paul's commending Timothy to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Because for the early churches, that was the only form they had. That was the only form they were able to encounter God's Word. So today we live in a culture that is increasingly individualistic. And because of that, our spiritual formation happens with me, my Bible, and my basement. We do not hear the Word of God as a community, so we interpret it individualistically and isolated from the body of Christ. And these should be massive red flags. A good parallel would be this. So, me and Jess are currently deciding on where we're going to go for our summer holiday. Uh, I'm, I have, well, I'm working through Christmas break this time, so we're going to go in February. And imagine this for a really wacky analogy. Let's just call it that. <laughs> It would be like me coming to the conclusion that, well, I want to go to Twizel, I want to go fishing. <laughs> I, want to, I want to enjoy the lakes, I want to enjoy everything that area has to offer. And my wife loves the spa and loves the hot pools and that, so she wants to go to Hamner Springs. And we just don't talk to one another about our holiday destination. We don't try to work through where we're going. So she's got it formed in her mind, we're going to Hamner. I've got it formed in my mind, we're going to Twizel. <laughs> Jess is going to be incredibly confused as we're going through Rolleston. <laughs> Why are we going south? <laughs> but the sad reality is, this all too often happens with Christians. We form our spiritual ideas alone by ourselves and then we're surprised when someone else is going in a different direction. Why didn't they come to the same conclusion that I did? Very good. Mm. It's because we weren't talking. We're doing it by ourselves. So some quick questions. Yeah. What do you think would happen if we all read Scripture together? 
You know, we, we think of like a social night, oh, come over, let's watch a movie, and we'll have some popcorn, and it'll be a lovely evening. We never think, hey, do you want to come over for an evening, and we'll just read through the book of Romans. It's <laughs> good. Let's just, let's just open God's Word as a community and just enjoy it together as a community. Um, do you think there'd be disagreement in that evening? Do you think there would be robust discussion in that evening? Would that discussion be fruitful at all? That's a real big question to ask. If we had this attitude, would there be any confusion over holiday destinations? <laughs> Yeah, so what if as a community we shared our scripture reading with one another? And when Isaac was very young, um, me and Jess had a shared Bible reading plan for, throughout the whole year. Um, and there were a lot of points throughout that year we'd actually come together and be like, what does the, we were both reading the same thing on the same day, and we're saying, what does this mean? What does that mean? I'm reading it like this, and you're reading it like that. And we had these wonderful discussions about what was actually being said. And we both realized we had these massive blind spots that needed another person to point out. And so these robust discussions and these disagreements in no way, shape, or form threaten the kind of unity Paul's calling us to in 1 Corinthians. This is a robust unity where we're gathered around Christ, united by his death, burial, and resurrection. And so if we have this good theology of unity, we can have robust discussion, which can be really fruitful and can contain disagreement. And that's a wonderful thing. I'll just ask you now, I just want you to suspend your disbelief. And we're going to imagine how this played out in history. Imagine now you live in the city of Ephesus, around 62 AD. You're a part of a house church, and there's diaspora Jews, there's Greeks, there's Romans, there's freemen, there's slaves, there's male, female, there's recent converts from paganism, and there's those who grew up on the Old Testament scriptures. Antiochus has come from Rome with a letter from Paul. And he's going to read it out for everyone to hear. And then afterwards, you're going to partake in a shared meal. What do you think that meal would be like? What do you think the conversation at that dinner table would be like? You have all this diverse culture and different experiences going on, and they've all received this word from Paul. Um, we have a special guest this morning. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before, found, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy 
and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his word, of his will, to the praise and the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in, in, and accepted and beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his glory and grace, which he made to abound towards us all in wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth and the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed in the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. Amen. So I want to pose this question to you. After the service, um, there's going to be a lot of us meeting for lunches or coffees and things like that. Um, maybe this is a great opportunity for us to discuss what Paul was actually saying. We all heard the word as a community, now we have the, the ability to discuss it together as a community. Uh, if the worship team would like to come. So just a, just a few thoughts. There, there might be people out there today who you do feel like your spiritual formation has been you by yourself. And if you feel like you want that to change or need that to change, please come and talk to us after the service. Come talk to me or Seb. We'd love, you. We'd love to talk with you and walk through with you and pray with you. Um, yeah, I just, I just want to pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your unity that you united us in your body on the cross we thank you that you have brought, you have brought all things together and you held all things together in yourself. Lord, I thank you that this is all to the praise of your glorious grace. I thank you that you have been so gracious and your grace has been poured out that we may be reconciled to God through you. We thank you for your word, your, the availability of your word. And we thank you for the radical vision of community that you lay out in the New Testament, Lord, that we're a community where, that we're all gathered together around you. 
Lord, we just want to glorify you in every single way, in every element of our lives. Um, and if having these unified disagreements glorify you, Lord, we want more of them. We want to be passionate about your word. We want to be zealous about your word. We want to be zealous about the truth of Scripture. And that requires work. Lord, may we work through it as a community. Amen.